You can turn in your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 40. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles stacked up on the table over there that you are free to take and use and take with you if you like. Guys, last week, we're in our last week in Mark's gospel. It's hard to believe. Let me, uh, let me read from Mark 15, starting in verse 40. Ready? You guys good? All right, here we go. I like it. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Brothers and sisters, he is risen. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we thank you for just this, this truth, this wonderful truth, that death does not have the last word, but Jesus Christ, your Son, conquered death, was victorious over death, that the tomb is empty, and therefore we have hope. Uh, so Lord, would you strengthen us this morning, implant in us that hope that we might live lives uh, of courageous faith, trusting in our risen King. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this is going to be a little bit of an awkward introduction, um, this morning we have arrived at our final Sunday in, in Mark's gospel, and we have the great joy of, of considering together the resurrection 
of Jesus. However, if you have your Bible open, and if you don't have it open, I would encourage you to have it open in your lap. You, you, you might notice something curious. I've just read to you Mark chapter 15, verses 40 through chapter 16, verse 8, and I told you that this is our last sermon in Mark's gospel, but I'm guessing, betting that most of you have another chunk of verses that come after verse 8. Uh, so what gives? Why, why, am, why are we stopping here? Uh, in order to answer that question, we need to talk about something that really does not get talked about a lot from behind the pulpit uh, because it's a little bit technical, it's a little bit academic. But I think it's important that, that you understand it. It's at least important to understand why we're going to stop here at verse 8. Uh, we need to talk about something that is a field of study in biblical scholarship called textual criticism. Has anyone ever heard of that before? Textual criticism? Uh, textual criticism, in a nutshell, is a field of study devoted to examining all of the available biblical manuscripts and comparing them to one another to determine what are the original words of the author, and therefore, what is the word of God? So you can understand why textual criticism is, is then an important field of study. So the, you know, right, the precise words of the Bible are really important. If you were to look in our statement of faith, you can go back and look this afternoon if you want. You can just take my word for it. In our statement of faith, in Article 2, it says that we believe in the verbally inspired word of God. And what that means, in case you don't know, is that we, act, we believe it's the actual words of the Bible that are inspired. So it's not, the, it's not concepts, it's not ideas, it's not uh, you know, phrases, it's not even the authors themselves. We believe the words themselves are inspired. So that when you open up the Bible, what you actually have are God's words to you. Amen? Now, that means that knowing precisely what those words are is really important. Uh, you know, of course, that those words were originally written in Greek and Hebrew and some Aramaic, and you have an English translation of the Bible in front of you because of the hard work of translators who have sifted through all of those biblical manuscripts. Uh, and in case you didn't know, there's lots of them. There's over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament alone uh, coming from you know, different centuries and uh, different degrees of completion, some little fragments like the size of a business card, others uh, whole copies of, of the New Testament from Matthew through to Revel Revelation. Uh, the New Testament is far and away, far and away, the most well-attested ancient document in human history. Now, because those manuscripts came into existence before the advent of the printing press, the way we have those thousands and thousands of manuscripts is because people hand-copied them. Okay, so a manuscript was passed along, and then someone said, I want to copy, and so they copied it by hand. And all people from different walks of life, scribes and peasants and farmers and merchants, they all uh, copied these scriptures, and that's why we have so many of them. However, uh, you uh, also know that anytime a document is copied by hand or anytime you've copied a document by hand, 
there is the, the probability that you're going to make an error, that you're going to copy something incorrectly. Um, and so there are, in these thousands of manuscripts, um, hundreds of thousands, actually, of what we call variants. They're, they're little variations, um, a, a misspelled word, an added letter, an added word, that are present in all of these thousands of manuscripts. Um, and, and so what textual critics do is they analyze those manuscripts by grouping them into families, by, by language, by the region where they were discovered, and by date. And then they compare them all to one another to weed out those little variants so that they can arrive at what the, the author's original words were. Are you tracking with me? I, t- I warned you. It's a little technical. It's a little academic. But it's important. I'm, I'm getting to the, to the mark part. So I, I'm, maybe some of you are just like freaking out a little bit at this point. You're like, wait, what's happening? <laughs> He's got me. He's like, all right, go. Um, now, if there are hundreds of variations in the text, right, and we're relying on people to sort through these variations, does that, should that cause in us some kind of doubt that what, we, that what we have is not actually God's word, or should that somehow cause us to question? And I think the answer is no, and, and here's why. There's a lot to this, and I'm happy to talk about this more with you if you like, but I'm going to give you just a brief overview here. Um, Let's say, for example, that let's suppose that I only had two manuscripts, and I don't know which one, but one of them I know is the original manuscript that Peter wrote or Paul wrote, which we don't have any of those, by the way. Let's say I know one of them is Peter's and one of them is Paul's, but then I have, but there's two of them, and one says X and one says Y right? In any given verse, there's this word or there's this word. If I only have two manuscripts, the best I can do is sort of like flip a coin. It's a toss up, right? I'm not sure. 50-50, I have God's word. 50-50, I don't. You see what I'm saying? But what happens when you have thousands and thousands of manuscripts that you can compare? Now, here's what I want you to see. Those thousands of manuscripts are the actual work of God's grace in preserving his word. Textual criticism is actually the means by which God has been at work through history to preserve his word so that the words that were written by Peter and Paul can now be handed to you and you can be confident that what you actually have are God's words. But um, something else you need to know, I shouldn't say but, I should say and, something else you need to know is that out of all those hundreds and thousands of variation, those little variants, very few of them actually affect the meaning of any given passage. A lot of them are like, again, like an additional letter or a, a, a misspelled word, which are very, easily, very easy, easily weeded out when you have these thousands of manuscripts, right? And we, sh- we should also say that none of them, none of those variants actually threaten in any way the core doctrines of Christianity. So even with all those present variations, hundreds of thousands of them, I think the count is like above 400,000, even with all those variants, none of them actually threaten the core central orthodox message of Christianity that has been handed down uh, from century to century to century. That's a fact. And so what that means is that thanks to a lot of people who are really well studied in Greek and Hebrew and Latin, and ultimately because of the the, the preserving grace of God, you can be certain that what you have in front of you 
are the very words of God, right? I don't, I don't want anyone here, I'm telling you about these little variants. It can be unfamiliar, it can be nerve-wracking. I don't want anyone here leaving with a sense of uncertainty about whether or not you can trust that what you have in your English Bible uh, are the words of God. Uh, if anything, this should bolster your confidence. And if you, you know, have some time uh, and you have some you know, free energy to, to do a study on textual criticism and you dive into it, that's exactly what you'll find. And again, I'd, be, I'd love to talk more about it. Now, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you this because there are two places in the New Testament, there's, there's lots of variations in the New Testament, but there are two, two, two big places in the New Testament where a, a whole sort of chunk of text has actually been inserted into the canon. And we've arrived at one of those places here this morning. And it is at the end of Mark's gospel. Um, most of the top biblical scholars, secular and Christian alike, agree that Mark, there's actually a shorter ending and a longer ending. What you have in your English Bible is the longer ending. That Mark chapter 16, verse 9 through 20 is most likely an addition. Meaning it's not, it's not original. It's not canonical. A couple hundred years after the original manuscripts were written by Mark, someone was copying it and added on to it. And that addition has made its way down through the years into our translation. Um, if you have your Bible in front of you, you'll notice that right after verse 9, do you see there's a little bracket? And it says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include uh, verses 9 through 20. That's the translators telling you that this section of uh, the text is questionable as to whether or not it should actually be considered as a part of the canon of Scripture. Uh, why? Uh, the manuscript evidence is, is complicated, but when you look at all of it, including the text itself in the original language, it strongly suggests that the later manuscripts actually added verses 9 through 20 onto the end of Mark's gospel. Now, let me just, wh why would someone do that? Right? Is there some like nefarious plot to like undermine the word of God? Why would someone do that? Well, if you look at how Mark ends, it's pretty easy to see why. Mark ends very much the same way that it begins, abruptly. Did you, did, it, it feels very abrupt. Did you notice how abruptly Mark begins his gospel? He just jumps right in. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Right? And now there's this very abrupt ending. Uh, Mark ends with the women who followed Jesus fleeing from the tomb afraid. And so probably what happened is there was a copyist, there was someone who was copying down Mark's gospel who said, well, that can't be the end, right? I've read Matthew's gospel. I've read, you know, I've read John's gospel, Luke's gospel perhaps. Uh, that, that's too abrupt. And probably assumed that a part of the, the, the uh, document was missing or had been damaged. And so filled in an ending that in many ways comports with the ending of, of Matthew, specifically in Jesus appearing to his disciples. And that these verses are a later edition, uh, you can pretty easily see it in the Greek. The, the vocabulary is different, the syntax is different, the style is different. It's, it's pretty obvious 
uh, that the, the whole feel of those verses is different than the rest of Mark's gospel. So, so why do translators leave it in then if it's so probable that it's not a part of the canon? Because the translators are trying to be transparent, right? Because they're trying to be open. So one way or another, listen, you know you have God's word right there in your lap. It's probably not a part of the canon, but here the, 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 the translators include it and say, hey, this is present in a lot of later manuscripts, but it's not present in the earliest manuscripts, right? So it's probably not a part of the canon, but full transparency, look, here it is. You see what I'm saying? So one way or another, you know you have uh, God's word in front of you. Um, the, the reason I'm telling you this is, is well, two reasons. One is, I, I want you to know why we're stopping here, right? So I, I, as I've looked at the, the data and looked at the, the scholarship, I'm persuaded that verses 9 through 20 are not original. So we're going to stop. Um, but the second thing I want you to know, uh, and, and then we'll, we'll jump into the text, is that this whole discussion should actually strengthen your confidence in the word of God. It shouldn't, it shouldn't uh, dismantle or, or make you afraid that what you have is not the word of God. It should actually strengthen uh, your confidence in the word of God to know that we have, again, a, an ancient document that is more far and away, far and away more well attested than any other ancient document, and that over the years, uh, translators have been able to, because of these many thousands of manuscripts, determine what are the original words of the authors. Textual criticism is a big field. Uh, It's way more complicated than I just described to you in the last 10, 15 minutes. If you have more questions about it, I would love to answer those questions or try to to answer those questions. Um, But I just wanted to give you a rationale for why we're, we're stopping here at verse 8. Um, and I think there's actually a reason why Mark does stop abruptly, uh, which I can, again, tell you at, at some point. Maybe I'll mention it here in a little bit. Uh, okay. Are you good? You guys need to take a deep breath? Okay? Okay. Let's, let's jump into our text then. Um, it's, it's appropriate that we find uh, in this last passage one final example of that literary structure that Mark is so famous and, and so uh, ready to use in making his point. Do you know which literary structure I'm talking about? We've seen it throughout Mark's gospel a number of times. It is the sandwich. The sandwich. Mark is constantly p- arranging his content in this sort of sandwich-like form to make a point. So let me, let me show you the sandwich. Um, verse 40 through 41 introduces us to three women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, which is probably Jesus' mother, though we can't be sure, uh, and Salome. Uh, Then Mark introduces us to Joseph of Arimathea, who recovers Jesus' body from the cross. And then in verse 47, Mark returns us to the three women and their encounter at the gravesite. So that's the sandwich. You have this little thing about these three women, and then there's this little blurb about Joseph of Arimathea, and then we're back to the three women, and that's the sandwich. And whenever Mark does this, He's, he's, he's using that structure to make a point. And usually what he's doing is he's contrasting what's happening in the middle of the sandwich, in this case what's happening with Joseph, with what's happening on the exterior of the sandwich to, to make this point. Uh, so what's happening and, and what's the point? Well, on the outside of the sandwich, we see three women who are afraid. That's what you see 
on, on either side of the sandwich. You see three women who are fearful. They are followers of Jesus, but they are fearful. Verse 40 begins by describing these women as looking on from a distance. This is still at the, the crucifixion site. Now, the word Mark uses for looking is unique. Uh, he uses it right there in, in, in Mark uh, verse 40. He uses it, uh, that same word, four times in his gospel to describe someone who's looking as an outsider, who's looking uh, from afar in, in, in kind of like a, a disconnected way. So let me give you an example. In Mark 3.11, he says, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, it's like that same word, looking right there. So again, it's sort of a, being related to unclean spirits. That's not great. Um, it says, they fell down and cried out, you are the son of God. So this looking at a distance isn't a faithful, like through the gospels, you'll see looking at Jesus as a, as a way to, uh, as a sort of like a synonym for trusting him. That's not what is in view here. They're looking on from a, from a distance. They're looking from afar as outsiders. And he makes that point, uh, he, to, to, to add on, he makes that point by saying, by adding this little phrase, at a distance. Now, if, if you are a perceptive reader, reader, you'll remember that Mark uses that same phrase to talk about someone else uh, just a little bit ago. Uh, do, do you remember in, in Mark 14 when um, Jesus has been arrested? It says, and Peter followed him at a distance. Okay, again, this, and what's, what's, meant to be, uh, what's meant to be emphasized there is Peter's fear, his apprehension. He's, he's following Jesus at a distance. That's how these women are being described here. They're looking at him from a distance. And then if we go to the bottom of the sandwich, right, look at how they're described. Mark describes these women as uh, alarmed. They fled. Their trembling and astonishment had seized them. And then the very th last thing Mark says in his gospel is that they were afraid. So that's what you have on the outside. You have three fearful women. But then let's go to the middle of the sandwich. What, what do we get? We see Joseph of Arimathea. Now here's what we know about Joseph. He was a respected member of the council. You know what council that is? That's the Sanhedrin. He's a, respect, he's, a, he's a religious leader in the community. But Matthew tells us in no uncertain terms that Joseph of Arimathea was actually a disciple of Jesus. He was like a, a covert disciple who, who kept his discipleship sort of under wraps because of uh, a fear of the Jews. Now, verse 43 says that he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So here it is. Do you see the contrast? You've got, you've got fearful women on the outside, and then you have this one formerly, formerly covert disciple who now takes courage and goes to Pilate, which would have been extremely risky, by the way, and asks for the body of Jesus so that he can uh, set it and lay it in a tomb. So against the, the, the backdrop of three women who are fearful followers of Jesus, we find Joseph, this covert disciple, uh, exhibiting not fear, but a daring faith. That's what that, that word, take courage, it literally means daring, risky, willing to take risk. He took courage. You see this one who was formerly a covert disciple, now living out a daring faith. 
So you have a picture of fear on the outside and then bold and daring courage in the mi- middle. And I, I realize this is like my longest introduction ever, uh, but, but just hang with me here. What is it that makes the difference between these women? That's the point. That's what, that's what Mark is driving at here. What's the difference between these three fearful women and then this bold, courageous, taking courage, daring, risking Joseph of Arimathea who goes to Pilate and says, uh, can, I, can I get the body of Jesus? Well, there's, there's one other description of Joseph, Joseph that I left out. In verse 43, it says that he was a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> now, there's something imperceptible happening here in the English translation. So, so the, the, the women who are feel, fearful are looking on from a distance, and we see Joseph looking to the kingdom. Okay, that word gets translated as looking in your English Bible. They are two different words in the, in the Greek. The one, theoreo, that's the women, is this at a distance, keep looking on from afar. The looking that Joseph is doing, the word is prosdekomai, it means eager anticipation, expectancy. He's eagerly awaiting and expectantly looking forward to the kingdom of God. That's the difference. What's the difference between a fearful, keeping Jesus at a far kind of following and a bold, daring faith? It is anticipating eagerly, with eager expectancy, the kingdom of God. that's, That's the difference. Okay, great. So what does that look like? How do we wait expectantly and eagerly in anticipation of the kingdom? Well, I think the reason, listen, I'm going to connect it all together here for you. I think the reason that Mark is making this point here at the very end of his gospel is because nowhere do you see the manifestation of the kingdom of God more clearly than in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? The announcement of the kingdom is what Jesus' ministry has been all about. That's how he begins his ministry. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the God. That's how he begins his ministry. In other words, when Jesus took on flesh and came to earth, the kingdom of God broke into the world. And nowhere, listen to me, nowhere can the blessings and the glories and the benefits of life in the kingdom of God be seen more clearly than at the empty tomb where death itself was defeated, where the grave was conquered. That in a picture, that is the glory of the kingdom of God. Sin's effects destroyed, death conquered, and new life. That the kingdom of God has arrived and that we are awaiting its final fulfillment is inseparably tied to to the reality of the resurrection. Are you tracking with me? Okay. So look, just to make this point. Do you remember when Luke begins the book of Acts? He picks up with the resurrection. This is how the book of Acts begins. Acts 1, verse 3. It says, 
he, this is Jesus, he presented himself alive to them, that's the disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom. That's how, that's how Luke begins the book of Acts. He, he rose, he presented himself, he, pre, he presented himself to the disciples after his suffering. He appeared to them for 40 days and he was speaking to them about the kingdom. So here's what I want you to see this morning with the time that we have left. A life of daring faith will only come when you live in light of the kingdom of God, manifest and made certain by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In in some sense, this is the whole message of Mark's gospel. You remember when we started Mark's, Mark's gospel, I said there were two main things that Mark was trying to do. He's trying to show you who Christ is, and he's trying to show you what it means to follow him. And so here we are, full circle. He is... Who is he? He is the resurrected Savior King who empowers his people to live lives of daring faith toward him. Now now here's what I want to do briefly with the rest of our time. I want to show you three ways that this text helps us and empowers us through Christ's resurrection to live these lives of, of daring, risky faith by looking specifically at what the angel uh, says to these three women. He's described as a young man in the text, but I want to look specifically at what he says to these three women women in verses 6 through 7. So here's the first thing. I'm going to move through these quick. The first thing is, the resurrection says, your debt is paid in full so you can be daringly honest. The resurrection says your debt is paid in full so you can be daringly honest. Look at verse 6. It says, and he said to them, this is the, the young man that is the angel, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. It's hard to imagine a more triumphant, encouraging, exhilarating word than this. Amen? He is risen. He is not here. Now let me draw your attention to that bold declaration that's made by the angel. He has risen. Again, I'm I'm going like, I'm nerding out on you a little bit this morning with the Greek, but it's important that you see this. That that phrase, he has risen, is actually a single word in the Greek. And I don't know why English translations do this, uh, but they actually, there's a better way to translate it. Instead of he has risen or or he is risen, uh, it would be better translated, he has been raised. Now, here's why that's important, okay? Because Mark's emphasis is that God has raised him to new life. This, the CSB, by the way, if you have that translation, that's why they translate it, he has been resurrected. The emphasis is that God the Father has raised him from the dead. Now listen, of course you know, we know, that the Trinity is at work all, all together in the resurrection, right? You remember Jesus' words in John 10, where he says, I have authority to lay my life down and authority to take it back up again, right? Jesus is at work in his own resurrection, taking up his life again. Or, or we can think about um, the way in which uh, the, the book of Romans, we read that uh, his resurrection is according to the spirit of holiness, right? So uh, all members of the, the Trinity are at work in Jesus' resurrection, but here there is, the, the resurrection is passive. He's, he's been raised 
by God the Father. And, and here's why this is incredibly important, because what it says to us, that God raised him from the dead, what that says to us is that the debt that we owe to God, the debt for our sin that aroused God's wrath and his judgment, which was poured out on Christ, has now been totally satisfied. Do you hear what I'm saying? The fact that God raises Jesus from the dead, what that means is all the wrath that was aroused, all the judgment that was aroused by your sin, sin, the resurrection is the proof. It's the evidence that that wrath has been totally satisfied. It's like the receipt. That's why Romans 4.25 speaks of Jesus as the one who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The greatest evidence of your justification is that Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is now alive again. At the empty tomb, we are made certain that the guilt and punishment of our sin has been completely removed. And so the, the, the angel says to the, to the three women, look, he's not here. And look, it's almost as if God is saying, like, look, all of your sin was, was laid on the crucified Christ. And he's not here. And so neither is your sin. You see? The resurrection says it's done. He, he was raised. It's been paid for in full. If God was still filled with anger and rage and, 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 and wrath towards you because of your sin, Jesus would still be hanging on the cross. He would still be spilling out his anger and wrath. But he's not on the cross anymore. He's raised from the dead because God's wrath has been spent. It's been spilt in full. Jesus is the, the walking, talking, living, breathing proof that God is no longer angry with you because of your sin. It, it's not, listen, it's not that God is no longer grieved over your sin. Don't hear me say that. Right? Is God grieved when you sin? Absolutely. Like a, like a father who grieves when his children disobey him. Of course. But his wrath against your sin has been totally removed and his righteous judgment against you has been satisfied. Period. Now, look, if I, if I were to purchase like a pair of sneaks, right, and, and, I, um, and they give me a receipt saying I paid for the sneakers, like here's the proof, here's the documentation, no one can come and be like, no, 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 you have to give those things back, right, because I have the proof. It's, it was paid for in full. They, they, they are mine now, and I have the documentation to prove it. And Jesus is the living receipt, the certificate, the voucher that says my debt to God has been paid in full by him. So if, listen, so if ever, if ever you begin to think again that God's anger is welling up inside of him because of you, because of your sin, you just go to the empty tomb. You go to the empty, he rose. It was, sat, it was finished. It was satisfied. He, sp, he poured it all out on Christ. There was nothing left for him to pour out. And that's how God then could raise Jesus from the dead. And listen, this is precisely why Mark is so concerned to give a detailed description. Did you notice in this passage how like obnoxiously detailed Mark is? 
He's, he repeats the, the names of those women like multiple, multiple times. Do you know why? Because he's very concerned to make sure his readers understand the fact of the resurrection. Right? This isn't just a cool like little theory out there. He's very concerned that they, ex- they know the fact of the resurrection. But, but, and I should say both the death, burial, and resurrection. So a couple, did you notice in this text that there are three people that verify the death of Jesus? Right? So maybe someone would say, like, well, he didn't actually die. Right? He just passed out and then, you know. No, no, no. Three people verify the death of Jesus. And one of them, by the way, so there's Joseph, Pilate. One of them is a centurion, right, who knows what it is to be dead, right? He's not some guy that's like, well, I don't know. I've never seen a dead person before, right? He knows what it is to see a dead person. And, and, and Pilate says, surprise, are you sure this guy's dead? Centurion, yep, verified, certified, he's dead. Joseph of Arimathea wraps him up, dead. And did you notice the shift between Jesus asking for the body of Jesus and then the word that is used Next to describe him is he's described as a corpse. Did you notice that? Do you know why Mark does that? Because he's trying to communicate to his readers, he's really dead. It's a fact, he's dead. And then also you see the women, right? Why does Mark go out of his way to say, uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, they saw where he was buried. They saw it. He's, He's lining up facts. You can... You can go talk to them. They were there. They, they saw it. And then again, uh, the fact that he names them again as those who come to the empty tomb. The very ones who saw where he was laid, they also saw that the tomb was empty. Now, here's what's really interesting. And this should give us great confidence in the factual evidence of the resurrection. If, if the disciples... If this was like a big giant farce, right? And the disciples were trying to persuade the world of this story that the guy that they believed to be the Messiah actually rose from the dead when, all, all, when really it's a big lie, they would have to be like the dumbest guys on the planet to bank their testimony on three women. Here's why. In the first century, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. It was, it, was not, it was not valuable. Now, that's not, that's, just, that's not me saying a woman's testimony is not valuable. That's a commentary on what the culture was at that, at that point in time. So the fact that the disciples include the, the, the reality that these women were the ones that saw him, what does that tell you? It tells you that they don't have an agenda. They're just telling you the truth of what happened. Do you see? Do you see what I'm saying? If you were going to make this story up, you'd make sure it was like Peter that saw him at the grave. You'd make sure it was reputable men whose testimony people would believe. But they didn't care. They were like, no, this is what happened. It was three women. And, and so there is this transgenerational, transcultural reality that the resurrection is a, a fact. It's a fact. Now, here's the point. Because it happened, because he really rose from the grave, and because you can know with confidence that your debt is paid, that your sin is forgiven, that God's wrath no longer abides on you, but he sees you as his own child, what that means is that you are free to be totally, unapologetically, and daringly honest. 
You can be honest about who you are. You can be honest about what you believe. You can be honest about your failures. You can, listen, you can stop pretending as a way to win the approval of God or others. You can be honest. You you don't have to live enslaved to the opinions of others or in fear of God's opinion. Why? Because the resurrection tells you what God's opinion of you is. You are forgiven, righteous. Debt has been paid. You are delighted in and accepted and approved of. No matter what happens, no matter what you do, the tomb is empty. And so God looks on you with acceptance and joy as his blood-bought son or daughter. And when you know that in Christ you are totally accepted, you can be daringly honest. You can be honest with God. You can be honest with yourself, with others. Right? If you feel like when you're around others, you have to sort of like put on this neat little Christian facade so people will think of you a certain way. The gospel says no. The gospel says your identity is is rock solid in Christ. You are forgiven. Your debt has been paid. And you don't have to prove yourself to anyone. The gospel in Christ says you are unspeakably more evil than you could ever understand. But at the very same time, you are incomprehensibly more loved than, than you could ever imagine. And so you can take the mask off. You, you can let your guard down. You can stop the performance. And listen, don't you long for that kind of community? Don't you long for those kind of relationships? Don't you feel, listen, don't you, don't you feel loved when you can be your, just yourself with someone? No pretense, no mask, but you can just be yourself. How do you do that? You do it when you know that the, the opinion that matters the most God's opinion of you is rock solid in Christ. He looks on you with love as his own child. And that's, listen, that's what you see in Joseph, isn't it? Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea is sort of like our example, right? In this passage. That's what you see in his life. He's this covert disciple who is afraid that the Jews are going to find out who he is. But now in, anticip- in eager anticipation of the kingdom. What's amazing is Joseph is there for the crucifixion. Right? He knows Jesus has died, but this has not dampened his spirits. This has actually strengthened his expectation. Now, with expectancy, he goes to get the body of Christ, and this has actually built in him courage. Courage to say, you know what? This is where I'm at. I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. He knows that when he goes to retrieve the body of Jesus, that's going to send a signal out to all the Jewish leaders that he's trusting in Jesus, that he's identifying with Jesus. But he's like, you know what? Let it be. Fine. I'm good with it. He can just be honest. This is who I am. You see? Okay. So when you see and embrace by faith the the new life of the kingdom that God has purchased for you in Christ that's manifest there in the resurrection it will enliven you in ways that you can't believe. Now, that's the first thing. The resurrection says your debt is paid in full so you can be daringly honest. Did we start late? I'm like, has this been really long? I'm just like way behind. I don't know, man. All right, let me, I'm going to go quick. Um, <clears throat> number two, the resurrection says Jesus is devoted to you forever so you can be daringly committed. Jesus is devoted to you forever so you can be daringly committed. 
So after all that, the angel says this. He says, verse 7, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. The, the, the message of the angel to the disciples is that Jesus is coming again to you. Right? Head out to Galilee. He's going to meet you there. Now listen, here's how here's our one pastor put it. This is one of the most gracious, one of the kindest, most gracious statements in the entire Bible. Here's why. One pastor put it this way. Consider what he could have said. Jesus, in his, at the moment he's resurrected, consider what he could have said. He could have said, you tell those faithless, backstabbing cowards that Jesus might deign to see them if they grovel, and they'd better grovel well. A message like that would have been perfectly warranted, right, on Jesus. The, these guys, they left him. They abandoned him. But Jesus' message to the disciples here through the angels was, I will see you. I'm going ahead of you. I want you. That's what Jesus says. Even, even to those who betrayed him, who, who left him, who abandoned he rises from the grave and he says, I'm coming to you. And, we, and listen, we know what happens when Jesus goes to them and meets them in Galilee. Does he ream them out? He restores them kindly. You have that beautiful picture of him restoring Peter and John. He's gracious with them. He's kind with them. He, he not only restores them, but he then commissions them again for ministry. He moves out towards them in love. Here's the point, that even in the face of being utterly betrayed and abandoned, Jesus is relentlessly devoted to his people. Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus is, if you are in Christ this morning, Jesus is relentlessly, unwaveringly devoted to you forever, no matter what. You don't, listen, you don't know that kind of devotion here in this life with these people. You don't know that. He, he, there's nothing that will keep him from you. He is devoted to you no matter what. The Bible uses the metaphor of marriage. You know the story of, 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 of God, uh, of the prophet Hosea, right, where he calls Hosea to, to marry a prostitute. And, they, and he says, go and take her and, and be a blessing to her and, and, and raise a family with her. And so, and so uh, the prophet Hosea takes a prostitute, Gomer, to himself, and they, he has a family and they have children together. And then she goes off and, and, and continues and is, is, faithful, is faithless and commits adultery and is selling herself again. And God says, go and buy her back. That's what God does for us in Christ. He, he relentlessly pursues us. This faithful commitment and devotion. If you're tracking, uh, if you're in a, in a life group, we're working through the book Gentle and Lowly. And I don't know where you guys are at. We're, we're in chapter, we just did chapter six. And one of the things the author says is, um, he's, he's meditating on this verse, John six thirty seven, where it says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And, and he says, this is not only a matter of divine decree, but of divine desire, right? That, that Jesus' commitment to you, that this promise that he will never ever cast you out comes from the very heart of himself moving out towards his people. There's nothing that will dampen or break his commitment to you. 
And uh, you see that this reality, that Jesus is, is willing to lay down his life even in devotion to his people, you see how it affects Joseph. We can go back again to Joseph's ex- example. Do you see the, the courageous then commitment he shows to Christ? Right In seeing Jesus, this one who had, he had been covert follow- covertly following, then laying his life down for his people, he says, I- I'm going to commit. I'm all in. My, my, I'm, I'm going to give everything to following Jesus Christ. And so he goes and, and asks for the body, which again I said was a very risky thing. Now this works itself out in our lives in two ways. When you Listen, when you see and experience the devotion of Jesus to you, it will do two things. It will move you outward. It will move you outward in uh, committing to stewarding the good news of Jesus faithfully. But it will also move you inward in terms of how you commit to other people, right? When you see the devotion of Jesus to you, it will actually enable you to daringly commit to others. Commitment is actually the, the, the soil in which real relationships can grow. Did you know that? This is one of the reasons why we prize membership so highly. Because if your relationship to one another is tentative, if it's uncertain, uh, you'll have a really hard time letting your guard down around one another. But listen, what happens? Listen, what happens when you have 40 people, 40 to 50 people who say, listen, we're committing to one another, come what may. Okay, now, obviously, b- barring, you know, like someone moves away for a job. But we, like we're here, we're committing to one another, come what may. In that, in that soil, in that environment, like you don't have to be afraid. Like when in my, with my relationships with you, I don't have to be afraid that you're going to take off and leave if you see something you don't like about me, right? And you don't have to be afraid that someone's going to take off and leave because they see something they don't like about you, right? In, in Christian community, there is an environment of devotion and commitment to one another that is patterned after Christ's devotion and commitment to us that actually enables us to live in real relationship with one another. Do you see what I'm saying? once you know commitment, all of a sudden the guards can come down, real transparent relationships can form. I can be vulnerable with you without being afraid. That's life in the kingdom of God. That's what it's like to live in the kingdom of God, in the community of saints. And it's made possible by the resurrected Jesus who comes to his bride, who has just betrayed him and says, I'm never going to leave you. I will never leave you. I love you and I am with you to the end. All right, so that's the second thing. I'm so late right now, but I'm going to do this third one real quick. The third thing the resurrection says is that Jesus always keeps his promises so you can be daringly confident. Jesus is, his resurrection says that your debt is paid in full so you can be daringly honest. The resurrection says that Um, Jesus is devoted to you forever so you can be daringly committed. And the resurrection says Jesus always keeps his promises so you can be daringly confident. Now look at the the last little phrase that the angel says. Verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And then he throws in this little gem. Just as he told you. Just as he told you. Why does the angel add that little bit? 
He adds it to remind them that what's happening is all according to what Jesus promised would happen. Right? Three times in Mark's gospel, he, he foretells his, his suffering, his death, and resurrection. He promises that he'll rise again. And see, now I think this point is, part- is, is particularly poignant as it relates to Joseph anticipating and eagerly expecting the kingdom of God. That, that looking is an eager anticipation, a trusting in the faithful promises of God in Christ that he says he will fulfill. So here's what I want you to see. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead, listen to me, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead it should, what it says to us, it should give you an absolute certainty that every promise he ever made, he will fulfill. Amen? Look, if, if, look, if someone promised, if, if, if someone came to you and promised to like pay down your mortgage, and then like a month later, they did it. And then they came to you and they were like, yo, you know what? I think, you, I think you need a new car. I want to buy you a car. You would be crazy if you were like, you know what, I don't think he's going to do it. I don't know. He just paid off your mortgage. He could probably afford to pay, you know, buy you a new car. The point is, look, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus fulfilled his promise in this massively huge way, look, he promised to save you from your sin, to give you eternal life through his life, death, and resurrection. And guess what? The empty tomb says he did. Is there any promise then that he cannot or will not fulfill? No, not one. Will he preserve you and keep you safe all the way to glory? Yes, he will. Will he sanctify every trial and hardship in this life to you such that it produces godly character and greater glory for you in eternity? Will he stand by your side, never leaving nor forsaking you, no matter what you do or what comes into your life? Will he make you a a home in heaven where you will get to be with him forever with all the saints in joy? Will he supply all your needs according to his riches and glory? All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. And you can sit and listen. Do you know what? The empty tomb says he will. You can know with certainty. The empty tomb says all of those promises are being and will uh, will be fulfilled. And now listen, all of a sudden, when when you know in the core of your being that, that Jesus has your back, no matter what, that Jesus will fulfill all of his promises to you, you are free to live a life of daring faith, a life that, that is clinging, that is not clinging to this world. I think you prayed something to this end. I was like, dude, he's preaching my sermon. This, you, you're free to live a life of daring confidence that does not cling to this world, that does not worry, that is not overcome with sorrow, but that is looking forward with certain hope to all of the promises that Jesus' resurrection guarantees, to life beyond a decaying world, to a new heaven and a new earth where our fellowship with God and with one another is perfected. Look, that's coming to you no matter what. Do you believe that? That's coming to you no matter what. And the empty tomb, the resurrection is the guarantee. So listen, why not enjoy the ride and live your life all out for Christ? 
Heaven is coming. So even now in, in your darkest hours of pain and stress and sorrow and grief, you can have joy. But now listen to me. I'm not saying that the pain isn't painful. I'm not saying that the grief isn't sad. I'm not saying that the stress isn't stressful or that the sorrow isn't real. Yet in Christ, we can go through all of these things with a joy and a boldness that's grounded in the certain fulfillment of all of God's promises that have been guaranteed to you and made certain by this fact, that he was raised, that the tomb is empty. Brothers and sisters, your Savior, Jesus the King, is alive right now. And all of his promises to you are yes and amen in Christ. Not because you are worthy, but because he is worthy. Amen? All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, the, the hour is late. But I pray uh, that you would drive these truths down into our hearts, that we would be empowered, equipped, strengthened to live a life of, of daring faith in you. Not because we're pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, we're, we're looking down into ourselves and, and working ourselves up to it, but because we see the work that you have done in Christ. That our Savior died, he was crucified, he, he died, he was buried, and he rose to new life. And, and Lord, that tells us that our, our, our debt has been paid. Uh, we, we no longer have to fear judgment. It tells us that Jesus is, is committed to us forever. And it tells us that all of your promises are coming to us. Lord, help us to live in the light of that reality. Help us to live lives in light of the abounding, steadfast love you have poured out to us in Christ. And I pray that that reality would make its way in, in shaping this community of believers, that we would be able to be honest and transparent with one another, not trying to put, put, a, put, put on a performance or, or, or make ourselves seem like we're something that we're not, that we'd be able to uh, commit to one another in good times and in bad times, and that we'd be able to move through our lives with, with a, 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 a joy, a joy that transcends all of the hardships. Lord, do that work that you would receive glory, that your worth would be lifted up, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.